You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Chris Noggle to get his thoughts on real estate flipping for beginners, as well as his other views on personal finance and building wealth. Chris is an accomplished entrepreneur, real estate investor, and author. He is the CEO and founder of Flipout Academy and The Money School, while having also participated in an HGTV show, Risky Builders, with his wife, Larissa. Chris and I's conversation covers multiple fascinating concepts, many of which I am not an expert in myself. For example, I know a thing or two about flipping, but I haven't actually done a flip myself yet. And I've read a bit about privatized banking, or also known as infinite banking, but I also haven't done that myself either. So I was really learning alongside you guys, the audience, throughout this entire episode. I hope you all find this conversation with Chris as fascinating and educational as I did. Let's get started. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I'm very excited to have Chris Noggle. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Let's start the show today by talking a bit about your background. Tell us your story and how you got to where you are today. I'll try to keep it short. So started like so many others. I started in a lower, lower middle-class family. Dad was an alcoholic. Mom had to raise me. It was a huge struggle for Growing up, I really never knew that there was anything different. My mom kind of provided what she could and we just did simple things. And if I wanted something, I I had to go out and I had to earn it. I had to work for it. That's just how life went. And I didn't realize that wasn't how everybody lived until I was in pretty much middle school and high school. And when I got into middle school and high school, I started seeing the differences. Like some of the kids, my friends, you know, when they wanted something, they would just ask for it. And I'm like, well, that's funny. I can't just ask for something. I actually had to go out and work for it. But the one thing mom did for me that was awesome is she always taught me to dream. She always taught me to dream big. And I was a visual kid. I always drew pictures. And if I wanted something, I would visualize it. I would draw it on paper and I would just fixate on it and it would become real. Whether it was a skateboard, a snowboard, a dirt bike, whatever it was, it always started with dream. And then I'd put that dream on paper and eventually it became real. Well, Fast forward a little bit from there to 16. I had been working all the way from 14 on at farms and different things, but I got a big boy job. And that big boy job taught me that I never wanted to work for anyone again. They treated me so awfully at this restaurant. The day I quit, I came home. I said, mom, I'm never working for anyone again. Can I use the basement to open a clothing line? My big dream was to be a big pro snowboarder. And coming from Buffalo, that's a tall feat because we don't have mountains, we have hills. But I was determined and During that, I needed money to travel out to New Hampshire, to Vermont, and the whole eastern seaboard is where all the snowboard action was happening back in those early 90s. So the clothing line, which was called Fat Clothing Company, P-H-A-T, started in 1992 in mom's basement. Well, a year later after starting that, I was traveling around selling the clothes to all these snowboard skateboard shops, and I actually started building a brand. I started getting it distributed out there, and I was doing pretty well. By 17, I had three seamstresses working. I had clothes in all these different shops. And my next big dream came. I said, you know what? If I've got this clothing line, I need my own shop. All these snowboarders that owned these shops, they seemed to me they had the life. 
They'd work in their shop. They'd go ride in the afternoon. It was just kind of the lifestyle business. So I start, started out on the journey to take fat clothing company and turn it into fat man board shops. But the only thing that stopped me there is I needed 70 grand. 70,000 bucks was what I needed to open this store. Now remember, I'm 17 years old. So I started going around and asking everybody for money. And I was asking, hey, can I borrow money? Hey, can I borrow money? I'd go to banks asking them if I could borrow money. And I heard, no, absolutely not. Heck no. To the point where I almost gave up. And my mom watched this whole thing. Now, bear in mind, my mother never followed her dreams. She always focused on you know, making me live mine and helping me dream big. And she said, you know what? I can't let you not follow this dream. So she did what I think, looking back, was a really stupid thing. Mom, the only thing she had was the house she got in the divorce. And she put her house up on the line as collateral so that I could get a loan from the bank to open this skateboard shop, which what mom puts the house, the only thing they have up on the line so their punk snowboard skateboard kid can chase their dreams. So mom did that. And at that moment, something switched with me. I had to all of a sudden learn that if I fail in business, I lose mom's house. So that's where Fat Man Board Shop started. 1994, my first retail shop. That's kind of what happened. It was a massive dream. So fast forward all the way up to the early 2000s, I'd become a pro snowboarder. I had four shops going. I mean, it would seem that I had the perfect life going. And I'd never seen a recession, but in the early 2000s, the dot-com crash, I saw my first recession when the planes hit the towers. And at that point, I realized, oh my gosh, this isn't working. I can't afford all this because I was highly leveraged and I had to get a job. That landed me in the financial services world. So in the early 2000s, I became a financial advisor, which was then supposed to just be a temporary thing just to get me through these hard times, but I ended up loving it. And in that journey of kind of transitioning from being the guy, the snowboarder, the, you know, everything in the shop, now all of a sudden I'm wearing suits and I wasn't working in my shops anymore, but I learned how to work on the business, not in it. And I went on to be one of the top financial advisors at the firms I was at. Things were going so good that all the way up to 2008, I was one of the top advisors. I was crushing. I was making a ton of money. I'd watched a, a TV show on one of the national networks about flipping houses. So in 2006, I said, what the heck? Got all this money, let's flip a house because in 23 minutes, you can flip a house, right? So I flipped my first house. It was a complete disaster. And then I did another one. And then by 2008, I was absolutely crushing it. And I decided now's my chance. Now I'm going to do something big. My lease was coming due in my main store. And I, I bought this dilapidated paint shop, two buildings down. And my dream was to take this dilapidated paint shop and turn it into a three-unit strip mall where my tenants would pay all the rent and all the mortgage and I would pretty much have my shop there for free. It was a grand idea, actually brilliant idea. Why pay somebody else when you can pay yourself? And what ended up happening is you know what happened. This is 2008, right? I borrowed money from a hard money lender. I'd never borrowed hard money before. I had no experience with it. I got into it and all of a sudden, the 2008 Great Recession and it brought me to my knees. It literally hit me like a Mack truck hit me at full steam ahead. And I got to the point where I was one payment away from being completely bankrupt. And I remember at that point, I went home to my girlfriend who had just moved into my house, that beautiful girl that moved in. And I said, you know, sweetie, I need your help. I need your help paying the mortgage. I need your help paying the utilities. And my friend Pete is going to move into that bedroom. And my friend Jessica is going to move into that bedroom because I can't make it. Now I knew I had a 50-50 shot. She's either going to walk out the door or she was going to stand up and help me. And well, I guess she kind of liked me because she's ended up marrying me. And now we, we have our first child who's now 10 weeks old, I believe. But anyway, got through that period barely. And from 2009 to 2014, I went back on this journey of buying more real estate. And I bought properties, pennies on the dollar, and I got up 36 units by 2014, which would seem like I'm 
back where I was because I was a pro snowboarder. I had sold the retail shops up to this point and I was a financial advisor doing really well. And in 14, I learned probably one of the most pivotal things in my life. I learned what failure really was. Now, I'd failed a couple of times, but now I really learned it because the bank who I was borrowing money from all of a sudden decided to freeze all my lines of credit. At the end of the year, you got to report to the banks. You got to show them, here's what I have and everything else and all that reporting. And when they got my reports, they basically saw that I didn't fit the little square box, the debt to income ratio. They froze my lines and then they ended up calling a couple of my mortgages. So here I was, you know, I lost it all in 2008, made it all back by 14. And now I had to sell all the properties. All 36 units had to be sold. The dream house that Larissa and I, who Larissa is my wife, that had to be sold. And things got so bad, I literally had to take a month-long backpack trip to Thailand just to get things straight in my head and my heart. And at that point, I came back and I was so devastated by what had happened. I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was over-leveraged, under-knowledged. And I remember I got a postcard in the mail. You probably got these. Postcard to come to a three-day seminar to learn how to flip houses. Now, I didn't go to this seminar to learn how to flip houses. I went because I had nothing to lose. And by going, I had an iPod shuffle to gain because that's what they were giving you for going. So I went there and I, it was you know, nothing I wanted to really learn because I was just so negative at that point, blaming everything. But two guys got up on the stage, Greg and Michael, never forget these two people. And they started talking about how they used money in real estate and the different things they were doing, how they were getting money for their deals. And Greg was the bank and Mike, he had a show on A&E. And all of a sudden, in my mind, I'm like, wait a second, every single thing they're doing in real estate and with money is the complete opposite of everything I've been taught to do. And remember, I'm a high-level financial advisor. Everything I'm taught to do with money is the opposite of what these guys are doing. So at that point, I changed everything I was doing. I started following them around. I racked up all my credit cards, get mentored by them to learn from them. Greg is now one of my business partners. And he taught me one of the most pivotal things. He always said this. He says, the ultimate in real estate is being the bank. Now, Greg had flipped thousands of properties, apartments and hotels and everything. And all of a sudden, he says to me, the ultimate in this business is being the bank. In other words, lending to people like me. And he lent me a lot of money. At that point, my entire life changed because what I started doing in 2014 is following around multimillionaires and billionaires to learn the secrets of the wealthy, to learn what is it the wealthy do with money that we are not taught about money. And that brings me to where we're at now. So yeah, that's the story. Sorry, it was a little long. It's a great story. And there's so many different things in there that I want to dive into. We'll talk about all the different things that you learned from following those guys around and what some of the misconceptions are in real estate that you had and that you learned. So we'll talk about that. And I want to talk about how you saw 2000 and 2008 different. How are those two time periods different? Because a lot of times people think they're similar, but it sounds like they might have been a little bit different for you. So what was that experience like and how were they different? So 2003 was more of a delayed recession. It hit, but it just was like a prolonged multi-year recession. It was like that slow burn, that slow pain. But 2008 was just boom, and it happened and it crashed and then it kind of rebounded, a V-shaped recession. But 2008 was devastating compared to 2000, the early 2000s dot-com crash because 2008 hit real estate. It was a real estate crash, a bank crash. So it pretty much hit everything that real estate investors were doing. Early 2000s was a tech boom. It was a tech bust. So it really hit technology, but then it trickled through the entire economy. And they're totally different. And if you look at where we're at now in 2020, and you try to go back in time and figure out what is 2020 going to mimic 2008? Is it going to mimic the early 2000s? And I'd have to say, it's probably going to be more of that long, slow burn like what we had in the early 2000s. Because what just happened now, the damage that's done, we haven't even seen. Stimulus, just like in 2008, 
brought everything back and now everybody thinks things aren't going bad, things are getting better. When they're really not, the underlying problems are still there. Well, that's exactly what happened in 2003. You know, it happened and the underlying problems were still there, which prolonged it. 2008 was, it hit, it hit really hard. People felt the, the pain, the suffering and lost a lot, but then it rebounded relatively quick. I mean, we kind of had a straight line up from 2009 straight through to today. Well, till March, I should say. You also mentioned that some of your loans are recalled by the bank. Walk us through the details of that a little bit. Some people listening to the show might not be familiar with what that means. So tell us a bit about that and maybe why they did that. And, and you talked about not fitting in the box. What were the specific things that made it so the bank wanted to freeze those lines of credit or even recall the loans? That's a great question. And that's a really important thing that people can learn from. What I didn't know is when I was doing this in 2009, when I was taking mortgages out, I was borrowing mortgages. I was taking mortgages in my personal name. Now, why would I do that? Well, number one, the interest rate was lower than the commercial lines. And number two, that's what my bank mortgage broker was telling me to do. He's like, well, it's a lower interest rate and we can get a longer duration on these properties. I said, well, that makes all the sense in the world. They never tell you that you are going to hit what I call the financial wall if you do that. You see, banks have metrics that they use called debt to income ratios. And I, I teach this, but essentially your income and your expenses are going to play into how much the bank will lend you if you're borrowing personally like I was. So in doing that, I just kept buying and buying and buying. Everything seemed great. They just kept giving me mortgages. But then all of a sudden, my percentage fell out. And even though all these properties were rentals that I own, they didn't factor in 100% of the rent like I did. I would say, all right, I got this rental, this eight unit, and it's cash producing this. So I figured they just used the rent roll. Well, they didn't. They used 70 to 75% of the rents. So while I kept doing this, even though my income was good, remember my expenses go up with every property I buy. And because they're taking all the expenses, but not all the income, no matter how you do this, personally, you can borrow essentially 10 loans. That's about what you're going to get to, but you'll never hit it. The math won't work. Unless you're extremely wealthy, you'll never get to 10 because you'll hit that debt to income ratio limit and then the bank will cut you off. So what I should have been doing, what I learned after the fact, after I lost all 36 units, which I wish I had today, I learned that I should have been borrowing commercially. I should have been using my LLCs, borrowing in the LLC name. And then you know, even if I had to personally guarantee it, if I did it right, number one, none of those mortgages, like today we have almost 70 mortgages in our LLCs names, 70. How can you get 70 when before I couldn't even get up to like seven? Well, the answer is commercial mortgages don't report on my personal credit score. Personal mortgages do. Therefore, the metrics of how it's all calculated is completely different. So if you want to scale, always do commercial loans in your business name. Try to do non-recourse, but most people are going to have to personally guarantee those loans. It was, it was something I wish, I just wish I had learned back then. But you know what? They don't teach this stuff. They don't teach it until it's too late. And that's why we're here talking about it on the podcast. So everybody can learn it. Because like you said, you're not going to be taught this in school. You're not going to be taught this in a lot of other places. So you've got to tune into resources like this podcast to learn it. So what is non-recourse and recourse loans? What are the difference there? So non-recourse, basically, you're not personally back in that loan. The strength of the company and the strength of the project is what's supporting the loan. Now, a recourse loan, you're as much in the deal as the property is. So they'll go after you personally and they'll crush your credit. They'll take whatever resources and assets that you have that you allow them to take. Now, you can control this. If you learn how to protect your assets, if you learn how to do that, you won't have that much at risk. But most people, when they get into real estate, they miss the most valuable step and that is that education step. That's what I did in 14. I got educated. I learned from some of the best in the business. But prior to that, I just I said, well, why would I pay somebody to teach me how to do this when I can just read a book or read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and all of a sudden I'd know what I need to know? 
I just dove in. Well, so many people do that. And you know what? The mistakes you will make will cost you double, triple, 10x what it would cost you to just get a coach, a mentor, and learn the right way. Learn from other people's failures. So that's what I didn't know recourse versus non-recourse. And even today, you know, it's, it's very difficult to get banks to want to give you non-recourse loans if you're not really big and you don't have a lot of commercial credit. But it's not impossible. You just have to start asking the right questions, interviewing banks. Instead of just going to your regular bank, go to community banks, small local community banks that actually care about you because it's a relationship business. And we're going to talk, I think, a lot about the relationship side of this business. But many people, they just go to their bank because they're just used to going to it. Well, if it's a big commercial bank, you're just a number. You're not a relationship with that bank. You're just a number. So take that and build relationships with smaller community banks that care about you, care about your business, and care about your projects. How has your experience, all of these experiences that we just talked about with debt and recourse and non-recourse loans, how has that changed your philosophy around debt? Has it? Not necessarily tactically, you know, whether you're using commercial or personal debt, but has it changed how you approach how much debt you're going to have, how leveraged you're going to be, things like that? There's been a lot of talk about whether somebody should be starting to pay back a lot of their debt given where we might be in the market or maybe just continue to be leveraged. So has it changed how you approach having debt on your properties? Yeah, 100%. But I mean, let's go back to the beginning of your mindset on how you think about debt. We always were brought up to think debt and liabilities was a bad thing. And, you know, I know most people that get into real estate, they've read the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And in that book, it teaches you there's good debt and there's bad debt. And good debt is debt that pays you. So now if we, if we just focus on debts that is good debt, rental properties that pay you passive income on a monthly basis in excess of what your expenses are, that is the good debt you're getting into leverage. So leverage is a huge part of scaling a real estate business. I wouldn't be where I'm at today if I didn't understand leverage, but you also leverage is a double-edged sword. You have to be very careful with it. You can over-leverage very easily. And I can tell you right now, and I'm not going to say much about this, I know a lot of real estate investors that are in a lot of trouble. They're way over-leveraged. They weren't careful. They just thought the gravy train was never going to end. How I've always run my practice is I've always I used to leverage up to 80%. Now I'm only going 70%. So I always want to keep a buffer, 20, 30%, which you can usually pick up. Like if I had 80% leverage back then, the appreciation has probably brought me closer to that 70% mark now. So I only want to leverage up to 70%. So if there is a fallout, which indeed there will be, that 70% you know, that, I, that I'm leveraged up to, I've got a 30% buffer that's going to carry me and protect me. The other thing too that's important is a lot of people don't learn from the past. So Let's kind of talk again about leverage. A lot of people in 2008 and 9 learned a hard lesson when they were living and working off of their lines of credit. California, let's just pick on them. They had tons of equity in their houses. You'd hear people were multimillionaires because of the equity in their house. And then they had these home equity lines of credit. And they're like, well, I've got all this money in my home equity line. 2008-9 hits. Real estate values plummet. The bank, just like they did with me, one letter, one phone call, one decision, shut your line of credit off shut or reduce your line of credit. Now that line of credit, which is what you needed to survive, what you needed to scale your business, what you needed to run your business is now not in your control anymore. The biggest thing is, is people don't realize this. You are not in control of your money. You have not been taught to be in control of your money. And those lines of credit, and believe me, I learned this because I was there and I had to learn from wealthy people what to do. So right now, here we are 2020. What is one of the first things I did when the country shut down? The first thing I did, I went to all my lines of credit, every single one of them. And most people are going to think I'm crazy when I say this. I maxed them all out. I took every penny from every one of those lines of credit. Why? Because that's what the wealthy people were doing. That's what all my wealthy multimillionaire and billionaire friends were doing. 
they were taking all their lines of credit. Now, these people didn't need money, but you know what they understand? They understand how to be in control of their money, not out of control of their money. So by taking all that money out of your lines of credit, and then once you get that money, don't just put it in your bank account and leave it sit there because your bank account's not in your control. It's really not. So what we did is we took all those lines and we shuffled them. You know, the old cup game, you know, you put something, you've seen the magic tricks with the cup game. Well, not in that one, not in that one. Well, that's what we did. We took all these lines and we moved them around to different banks. We also deposit a ton of money. See, we don't use banks like most people do. That's not where we hold our wealth. We hold most of our wealth in mutually owned giant insurance companies. Why? Well, because that's what I learned. I learned that the wealthy don't keep their money in banks because they don't trust them. So when we diversified all this money from these lines, we shuffled it. We put it in community banks and credit unions. We have right now, and you're going to think I'm crazy, 29 different bank accounts, not including the accounts I have at mutually owned insurance companies. Why would I want that many? Well, because if anything ever falls out, if 2021 turns out like I think it's going to, and I need money and I need liquidity because cash will be king, when everything falls apart, people get scared. Well, that's when you got to get greedy. Warren Buffett says, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. I'm really fearful right now. I'm hoarding cash and I'm shuffling this money around. When it all happens and I need capital, I just go and I just do a day trip to all these banks and I just take all my money out. And I'm never going to really have a problem where I walk into a bank and I go to take my money out and the bank says, you can't take all your money. We need a couple of days or we can only give you three or five grand because I've got it shuffled around. And mutually owned insurance companies, I just click a button and the money's in my account. So these are just some of the lessons that I've learned. Don't ever think you're in control of those lines of credit because the bank at any time can shut them off. So if you want to be in control, well, take the control and do something with that. But then comes the second part. When I take these lines, the bank starts charging me interest. And a lot of people would say, yeah, but now you're paying all this interest on this money. Well, first off, I understand how to move money. And that's the most important thing. So first I put it in these accounts, but from those accounts, I move it. See, money is nothing more than a raging river. You have to keep your money moving like a raging river. And when you have more, your river gets wider. When you have less, your river contracts. But one thing that happens from time to time is your money finds its way off one of those little cricks off that river and it ends in a stagnant pond. And that stagnant pond, if you think about a fish in a stagnant pond, would you want to eat it? I wouldn't. I'd rather eat the fish in the raging river. But the stagnant pond is full of death and it's just, there's nothing good in there. But what we've really been taught our whole lives with money is to do nothing but leave our money sit. We don't know how to move our money because we're not taught to. We, we've been taught to give up control to everybody else. We give money to financial institutions. We give money to advisors like I used to be. I was an advisor for over 16 years. Believe me, I know this from the inside. We would tell people that money was complicated and money can be complicated, but we'd make it extra complicated so people needed us and people would then give us control of their money and that's how we made money. But they could have just kept control of their money and learned a few things to keep their money moving. And that's kind of what I do today. I really just teach people how to, how to move their money, how to be in control of their money. And these are just a couple of the little things that I picked up along the way. It's really interesting that you talk about how you maxed out those lines of credit because that's what a lot of major corporations did. We'll just take Boeing, for example. And we're talking about real estate here, but on my other show, Millennial Investing, we talk a lot about investing in stocks. And that's what you saw Boeing do. As soon as this happened, they knew that they were probably going to have trouble, you know, given everything that's going on with their, their airplanes and aircrafts right now. They knew they were probably going to have issues with their lines of credit anyway. So they went out and they maxed their entire line of credit and everybody started panicking, like, what's going on with Boeing? And they're probably just doing the same thing you did is just trying to maintain that liquidity. And there's a lot of other companies that did the exact same thing. 
because of the exact same strategy that you said. And you mentioned Robert Kiyosaki saying that debt is evil unless it pays for itself. And that's exactly, I had the opportunity to, to meet with him. And that's exactly what he told me too, is he said, if you just say debt is evil, then I would have a lot of, lot of evil because I have a lot of debt. But the good thing is that all my apartment buildings and all my rentals actually pay for that debt. So I don't consider it that way. He said, the bad evil debt is your student loans, your credit cards, your auto loans, your things like that, that aren't actually providing any income to you. So thought that piece was, was really important as well. And it's, and it's important to Boeing. Like There's an important lesson there. Boeing didn't need the money. Like you're saying, they went out and they took all their lines. They also did a huge, a massive bond offering. Why would a company that doesn't need cash go out and raise more cash through a bond offering, which means they now have to pay the bondholders interest? Well, the answer is, is they knew something was coming. They knew it was going to be bad and they needed cash to be ready. Now, Boeing actually is a very strong company. They're even stronger today by making that decision. When I tell people what I did with all my lines of credit, the first thing they say is, oh, how much interest are you paying? And you know what I say to them? I say, see, that's the biggest problem. You think that cost is the number one thing, but cost is only an issue in the absence of value. So let me ask somebody a question. If cost is what you're so concerned with and you just leave your money in your line, lines of credit and then the bank freezes your line, what value did you just give up? What is those, those opportunities that you now have to pass on? When your neighbor comes to you and says, I'm going to lose my house, do you want to buy it? I just need to walk away. I figured I'd ask you. And you're like, darn it. If I would have only taken that money out of the line before they froze it, I'm sorry. I, now you have to pass on that opportunity. See, when I took the money, yes, there's a cost to that, but that cost is only an issue if there isn't value. Well, the value is the opportunities that are going to start presenting themselves, even though they haven't really yet. You know, there's no opportunities in the stock market. I bought Tesla at 415 when the market tanked. That was an opportunity, but I sold it. And people are like, oh my God, you sold Tesla? Look, I made 105% in a very short period of time. Of course I sold it. Because Warren Buffett, if you can follow anyone, and I know this is real estate, but listen, real estate, money, it starts with money and it ends with money. Real estate is in the middle, and real estate is the component of what you can do when you understand money. Without money, real estate isn't going to exist for you. So we have to understand money to actually understand real estate and how to scale a real estate business. And Warren Buffett says, buy low, sell high, and don't lose money. But that don't lose money thing is kind of like that Family Guy episode, you know, where he's in Bed, Bath, and Beyond. You know, we understand Bed and Bath, but what is this Beyond thing? Well, that's kind of like Warren Buffett's buy low, sell high. We understand that, but how do you not lose money? Simple. Follow one and two. I bought Tesla at 4.15 in March when the market tanked. Tesla's a great company and I knew it was. And I sold Tesla before it hit 1,000 because I hit my number. I had an exit and that was high. Now, has it gone higher? Absolutely. Do I ever sit back and say, boy, I should have held on to Tesla? Absolutely not. You have to have rules. Just like real estate, money, real estate, the same thing. If you operate a real estate business without a set of defined rules, you might as well just put a blindfold on, get in your car and just drive and just Put the pedal straight to the metal and just see what happens. It's the same thing. If you don't have rules in your business, in your investment philosophy, in what you do, then you are literally flying completely blind or driving completely blind. Although this is a real estate show, like we've both said, one of my favorite parts about this podcast is that we talk about personal finance and we even talk a little bit about stocks. And the reason I like that is because a lot of real estate podcasts act as if real estate is the end-all be-all and it's the only asset class you should be in. And I don't personally think that's the case. I think real estate is very important. I think a lot of people should be involved in it, but I think it's just a component of your portfolio. I think it's real estate and stocks, not real estate or stocks. And so that's one of the things that I like that we're having this conversation about. Now I want to transition a bit and talk a little bit about your experience on your TV show on HGTV. You notice how I didn't even bring that up. 
Well, I'm curious to hear your experience because we've actually had another guest on the show in the past that had an experience with HGTV. So I'd love to hear more about your experience. It's an interesting one. So you remember I said back in 2014 when I met those two guys, Mike and Greg, well, I ended up going into this education program and me and my wife were in Las Vegas at a summit. And I remember watching, and I'm not going to name them, but two TV show stars, flipping show stars, get on the stage. And I remember loving what they were talking about, loving that they, were, they had the attention of this entire audience of 600 plus people. And I looked to my wife and I said, Lewis, I said, if we're ever going to get on that stage, we have to have our own show. Now, remember, I was a pro snowboarder for a long time. And being a pro snowboarder, you're always filming videos. There's always video parts. So I knew producers. I knew guys that could film. So when we got home, I took one of my friends out for drinks and I said, and he was a videographer. And I said, listen, I want to film my own TV show. I want to create a pilot and sizzles so I can send it off to HGTV and it's going to be awesome and blah, blah, blah. I spent 40 grand paying my friend and audio people and everything else to produce seven sizzle reels. Now, most people wouldn't have done that. Now, I didn't have the extra 40 grand, but you know, again, cost was the, the only an issue if I didn't get the show. So that was 14 when that began. And anyway, it was one of our flips. It was a mess, but we got through it. We got these sizzles put together and I sent them out to all the networks thinking, oh my God, they're going to love this. It was basically skateboarding and flipping houses all brought into one video and they hated it. And they said, no. Amy said, no. HGTV said, no. They all said, no. Now, most people would have just quit. And I said, no, I'm not going to quit. So we were, we were in contract with a producer and that producer basically, we ran out our contract. They said, sorry, we couldn't get this thing you know, to go. It was a great show. It was an awesome idea. But I immediately, when that ended, I went and I found a different producer who understood what the networks actually wanted. You see, before, when I first did the show, it was all about what I wanted, right? I thought, this is going to be so awesome. Never been done. It's what I want. And I just assumed that they would want it. But what I learned there is, it's always about them and what they want. We had to solve the network's problem. And the network had a problem where they wanted a couple show. They wanted a couple show with a unique individual who was Blair, an ex-pro snowboarder of mine, who was a contractor, who brought this crazy dynamic. And we filmed with this new producer and got a sizzle. And that sizzle got picked up. And all be all, we ended up airing on HGTV. Uh, it was two years ago. It was an amazing dream, an amazing experience, but one that literally was built on, it was a house of cards. When you look at a show and you think, oh my God, we're going to make all this money on the show. When you actually get the contract from the networks, you're like, whoa, whoa, we're, guys, we're missing a couple zeros here, man. Like, really? I can't do this for that. Well, take it or leave it. Oh, all righty. So that's what it was. It was, you don't make the money on the show. The show is literally the loss leader. You make the money on everything else. And there's so much more I could talk about with the show, but let's just put it this way. It was just another dream. I don't want to be defined by the show. I don't want to be known as the guy you know, who had the TV show, which was called Risky Builders. You can look it up. But I also want to say, if you dream it and you believe it, you can achieve it. That was the likeliness of getting struck by lightning. And it happened to just us little Buffalonians here. And we actually had a national show on HGTV there six times. And then after that, we never went on to the next season, which was, again, like a big blow for us, but the best thing that ever happened. Because if I did have that show, I would have been trapped and locked into it, where now I was free to go out and chase the dream that I always should have been doing. And the reason I ask about that is not only because it's entertaining to learn about the ins and the outs of the shows that a lot of us see on TV, but I also like to learn, and I want the audience to learn, that not everything you see on TV is necessarily completely accurate. Things don't go always as planned, not just on the show, but what have been some of the biggest unexpected issues that you've run into when flipping all the houses that you've done? 
And for those who may not be familiar with the flipping strategy, tell us a bit about what that is. Flipping is just the art of buying a property undervalued, buying an off-price or an undervalued property, and then doing renovations to make it you know, appreciate. You're forcing appreciation into the property through renovations and making it beautiful. And then you've got this beautiful finished product that you put on the market and you sell for a profit. It's, it's a fairly simple concept, but when you actually boil it down and you say, what are the problems with flipping? Everything. First and foremost problem is it doesn't take 23 minutes to flip a house. I watched my first show and I went and flipped the house. It, it was way harder than what I saw on TV. See, all the hard stuff, except for like the things that are entertaining, they don't show you all those things. They don't show you that when you get into a property and then all of a sudden you're working on it for six months and then all of a sudden water starts to appear in the basement. You can't figure out why. When you figure it out, it's a six to $10,000 problem. We live in Buffalo. There's a lot of water issues here. Or you get into a deal and all of a sudden you take down the finished walls in the basement, you realize all your foundation is crumbling or cracked. These are the things they don't tell you about. They don't tell you that contractors, if you don't understand how to work with them, some of them, the bad ones, if you give them a deposit that they ask for, sometimes they just don't show back up. And then you think, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just take them to court. Yeah, right. Take them to court and then they have no money to pay you. Been there, done that. Man, I could talk for an hour on all the pitfalls of flipping. But the one thing I will tell people is if you're looking to get into flipping, it's a great business model, but it should absolutely positively not be your only strategy. Real estate isn't built on just one strategy. Real estate is a multifaceted strategy business. And you have to have multiple strategies if you're going to succeed long-term. Now you watch the shows and you say, oh my God, they make all this money and they're, they're driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis. Folks, don't believe what you see on TV. We know those people. Now, are they driving fancy cars? Yeah, but are they making money the way you think they are? Absolutely not. And what happens behind the camera is not what happens in reality. And I, I don't want to go too much further into that, but I just want everybody to realize is, <laughs> as shown on TV, I guess is the only thing I'm going to say, it's not what it seems. I think flipping is a great strategy, but I think people that are getting into this business as real estate investors need to be very careful. Right now, holy crap, if you're getting in thinking that flipping is going to be the way you're going to become wealthy, good luck. Because right now you'd be buying at the highest point the market has ever been, and that is a dangerous position to be in. So you absolutely have to focus on creating multiple strategies and understand based on the economy, understand based on the timing, and understand based on where you live, what is the right strategy, not only for you, for your family, but also for the market. Outside of just some of the mistakes that you've seen or issues that you've run into, what are the major red flags that you've learned to look for when you're walking a property as a potential flip? Some of the biggest red flags is I used to go in and you know I'd look at a property, no matter how bad it was, and I always had this big dream that I could fix it. I can fix it. But what you end up doing is you end up getting so deep into the project that you don't make money. Now I look at properties and I look at ones that need the least amount of work. The red flags are the biggest things, foundations. If there's a foundation issue, even if you think you know how to fix it, just walk away. It always is going to cost double what you think it is. Water. If you live in an area where there's a lot of water issues, like here, be very cautious. If there's water or dampness in the basement, just double the amount you think it's going to cost because there's a lot of unknowns. Get into the attic. A lot of people will just walk through and they'll look at what you can see, face value. Get behind the scenes. Try to see behind the walls. Try to see what's in the attic. Is there sags in the roof? That was a big thing. I never thought anything when the roof had a sag. And I learned the hard way when a building inspector showed up on one of our projects that we were putting a roof on. And he's like, you guys can't put a roof on this. Well, what do you mean? It needs a roof. Yeah. Well, you see that sag? That means there's a problem. You need an architect. You need plans and this. That $10,000 roof turned into a $30,000 roof. How much profit do you have in a flip? Well, I can tell you not that much. That property we lost money on. And you know, the one thing I'll tell you about that, we've done 
almost 270 flips to date. And I don't remember all of them, but I certainly remember each and every single one I lost money on. And I remember what mistakes we made. And every single one of them, there were simple mistakes that we ignored in the beginning because we thought, oh, it's not a big deal. Everyone. How are you able to find these properties as potential flips? For someone who's listening to the show that's new to investing and decides they want to give flipping a try, how are you finding those properties? Well, you know, that's the secret sauce. You know, you can't make money in real estate if you don't understand what you just said. Finding lucrative off-market deals. Now, there's a lot of ways, and everybody wants to just go out and do the easiest way, the push-button way. But you know what? Those ways don't always work. I will tell you this. The number one way we find deals is through relationships. I'm old school. Call me, okay? I'm not the guy that sits behind a desk and sends out 10,000 mailers every single month and then just has ringless voicemail hitting it. And just so all of you know, these are just added technologies that you can do just by a click of a button. You can send out 10,000 mailings saying, I want to buy your house. I'll pay cash, no contingencies. And then those people will call you and then you just keep hitting them. Now that strategy works, but that can't be and shouldn't be your only strategy. I know a lot of wholesalers, which I think we'll talk about wholesaling. A lot of wholesalers, that's what they do and they make great money doing that. The best of the best of them, I will tell you, it comes down to the relationship. Their skills of building in a relationship with the seller and that relationship is built by solving their problem. You see, that's the number one thing. You want to be good at real estate? Solve people's problems. You are a professional problem solver. So a couple of ways that I find deals. Number one, I, I sourced out and I said, you know what? If the banks have all the deals that I want, how do I get the bank deals? I used to think I could just call the bank. Well, we know that can't happen. I used to then think I could call the attorney. Oh, that doesn't happen either. But then I figured out that there's these brokers that work specifically with bank foreclosures. So we developed relationships with these brokers. And that wasn't easy because they have more people that want to buy their inventory than they have inventory. So they're selective. Just like everything else that I learned you know, in my experiences with everything I've done is I learned that I have to find out what that person likes, what they want, and I have to solve that problem. This bank broker happened to like fine whiskey. Hey, it is what it is. I sent him a bottle of the finest whiskey I could find. That got me a dinner with him. At that dinner, we paid and we just talked about him. How have you done it? How's your business been? How have you got all these properties? Not about what we wanted. We focused on him, what he needs, what he wants, and we figured it out. What he wants and what he hates is when he gets brokers that come in and they want their 3%. He'd much rather just work with somebody like an investor that just gives him both sides of the commission. We said, oh, that's it. We'll give you both sides of the commission. Just bring me the deals first. I have done, I don't even know how many deals with just that broker because he sends a deal to me before anyone else ever knows about it. So I've already seen it. I've done my analysis. The second that deal hits the market, because most of these brokers have to list it, I've already got the inside scoop. My offer's in. And do you think my offer kind of gets to the top of the pile? Yes. How about relationships with estate brokers? Okay. Estate brokers are when you drive around, you see an estate sale sign, right? A professional one. We'll go to that, ask who the estate broker is, build a relationship, and then learn what they need. Our estate broker, we found out they just wanted a little extra money to pay for their vacation. So you know what we do? Okay. It's funny. We basically said to him, we said, how about this? When you go to a property and people you know you want that they want to sell, tell them you know somebody that pays cash, they'll close fast, no contingencies, they can leave all the stuff. And you know what? When we close, we'll give you 500 or 1,000 bucks. And we ratcheted that. That has been a huge source. And then just driving around your neighborhood, look for long grass, look for signs in the window, then go down to your tax assessor and ask them, who owns this house? Reach out to them, solve their problem. There's a reason their grass is long. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe they've got a divorce situation going on. Find the problem and solve the problem. That's how you get deals. When I first got into real estate, I didn't realize how much 
of a problem solving business it was going to be. But nearly everyone that I've talked to in real estate has said the exact same thing. It is a problem solving business. Learn how to solve problems and you'll be successful in real estate. Absolutely. And it's the same thing when, you know, like money is a huge thing in this business. You know, a lot of people that I talk to, because I've coached thousands of people, they're always like, well, I don't have any money. Well, it's not about your actual resources. It's about how resourceful you can be. But if you want to think it's about your money, well, then carry on and you'll, you'll never make it. So to raise money for real estate, most people think, well, I'm going to, I got a deal. I'm going to start asking people that I know for money. The second you ask for money is you're in a position of weakness. You can't go out and raise money by asking for money. You have to go out and raise money by solving people's problems. And the biggest thing I teach people, because this is a huge thing with real estate, especially new investors, they always need money. I wrote the book, Private Money Guide. It's all about how to raise money. But the number one thing that I always tell people is stop worrying about asking for money. Stop worrying about whether or not you're going to find money. There's tons of money around you. You just need to know what the sources of money are and you need to know what the problem is. Listen, this is 2020, COVID-19, the epidemic, pandemic, whatever you call this. This is the easiest time I've ever seen to raise capital because all you need to do is go to your neighbor, your coworkers, your friends, your family and solve simple problems. What problems do people have? Well, if your neighbor lost his job or got furloughed, a problem that they might have is they don't want to pay for their car payment. They're having a hard time making their car payment. So you know what you can do? Pay their car payment. Teach them how their house can pay for their car through the equity that's just sitting lazy on their couch doing nothing. See, people always have equity in their houses and they think, oh, I got all this equity in your house. Great. What is that changing your life? Is that equity paying for your car? Is that equity sending you on vacation to Disney World with your family? No. It's just sitting there lazy on your couch doing nothing while you go out and hustle and work for money. Because that's what we've been taught to do, right? Go out and work for money. We've never been taught to make our money work for us. You want to raise money? Go teach people how to make their money work harder for them and then show them how to have their house pay for their car. Show them how to have their 401k pay for their car. Show them how the money they think that isn't usable can be usable. And all of a sudden, money will just be attracted to you and you'll raise money. Lots of it. What are some of the things that you learned about upgrades that people should or shouldn't make when you were doing up to 270 flips? What are some of the upgrade options that provide the biggest bang for their buck when you're flipping a property? That's easy. Kitchens and baths, hands down. You know, you, if you remodel a kitchen, you, you get so much more. But a lot of people will remodel the kitchen and skip the granite countertops. Granite's so inexpensive or quartz. That's a huge upgrade. If you have existing cabinets that are in good shape, paint the cabinets, replace the, the poles, replace the hinges, and put nice granite countertops with nice fixtures. And that right there will change your entire dynamic of your property. Bathrooms. Don't ever skip a bathroom. Renovate the bathroom. You can skip a lot of other things. Like, heck, if you were thinking, oh, I'm going to put all new floors in, why don't you just carpet it all, but don't skip the bathroom in that. Another big mistake people make is they, they focus so much time, and I used to do this, on all the cosmetics, right? The, the beautiful little intricacies, the things that you would want in your house that someone else might like, but it's not going to make the difference. Focus on the big things. Don't ever leave an old roof on a house because you might know their roof costs 10, 15 grand, but that person that's buying that house, they might not have 10, 15 grand and they might think the roof costs 30 grand. They've never put a roof on. A furnace for you, you're like, oh, furnace is easy. It doesn't cost a lot. So then replace the furnace because to them, that furnace might just as well be a $10,000 bill. All those little things, the big mechanicals that you don't think is a big deal, your buyers will. Windows, roofs, furnaces, air conditioning units, electrical panels, those are the big things. Skip the real fancy stuff that you see on HGTV because that stuff, although it looks great on TV, it doesn't sell your house for more. It just makes you make less. I think doing less is more now. I think right now, the less you do, the more imagination you give to the people buying the house, 
If you take care of all the big things and you give them a nice, clear palette, you're going to make way more money in this business. Looking back, what do you know now that you wish you knew about flipping when you were just getting started? Oh, 100%. I understand money in a way that I had no clue. And I thought I knew all about money because I was an advisor. But the biggest thing I know now is exactly that. I know how money works, how to make money work in real estate. When I got into this, it was all flip, 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 flip your way to wealth, right? Well, flipping my way to wealth ended in huge cash flow problems. So now, one thing I wish I knew back then is I wish I knew that I needed rentals with passive income to provide cash flow. And then if I, how I do it now is I got all my rentals, whatever the net cash flow is, that's how much I can basically go out and do in flips. The cash flow of the rentals supports my flip habit because that's all flipping is. It's just a bad habit. So if you want to flip, build the rental portfolio, build a wholesale business that's going to provide income that then supports what you're doing in flips. And the flips just become an added revenue source. You need three strategies. I always, every deal we get, first thing we'll do is we'll try to assign the property. Always. It's the quickest money. And assigning is just, if you got a contract on the property, you put some special language and or assigns or other language you can put in that gives you the ability to assign the rights of that contract to somebody else. Now that contract has value because you got it at a great price. So you can sell that value to somebody else. That's assigning. And you can make quick, easy money if you know how to find deals. Flipping. I have a rule. If I can't make 20% on a flip, I will not flip it. So if I can't make 20%, it's moved to what we would call the Burr strategy, which is a rental strategy. And we will renovate it, not as much as we would with flipping it, rent it out, take it to that beautiful community bank, get a commercial mortgage on it, pull all of our equity out or pay our private investors back all their money, have no money in theory, have no money into the property at all and have a cash flowing asset that now that income comes in. We don't just spend that income. We use that income to then go out and get the next flip. So you need multiple strategies to be successful, but you also need to understand how the money piece works in order to make all this work. Let's talk about that money piece a little bit more. Whether it's real estate or stocks, I, like I talk about on my other show, Millennial Investing, I believe that at the core of being a good investor is having a good personal financial base. So I want to shift gears and talk about that a bit and how personal finances can help the listeners become better real estate investors and just investors in general. So what is the money multiplier method and how does it differ from other wealth building strategies? Oh, it's totally different. And this is the biggest thing I learned on my journey with wealthy people. And here's, here's the gist of it. The money multiplier is, is a 200-year-old strategy created back by the Rockefellers when they didn't believe in banks. They didn't want their money at banks because they weren't comfortable. They had to find a way to bank using something other than banks. And what they did is they landed at insurance companies. Mutually owned insurance companies were the strongest financial institutions back then, and they are now. But you can't just go to an insurance company and say, hey, I got all this money I want to deposit with you. It doesn't work that way. So they had to figure a way to create this banking system. And how they did it is a, a very old financial vehicle that most people have a completely the wrong misconception of what it is, but it is called whole life insurance. Now, when I say that, the first thing you think is, oh, that's a terrible investment because that's what the gurus out there have taught you. And you know what? Whole life is a terrible investment. Let's just call it what it is. It's a terrible place to invest your money, which is why you don't use it for investing. You use it for banking. So what do you, what do, you do when we use these whole lives? We don't use a regular whole life first off. We use them the same way the banks do. And just so everybody knows, these insurance policies, these specially designed and engineered whole lives that we do through these mutually owned giant insurance companies, We've figured this out because of the Rockefellers and also banks. Banks are the number one purchasers of whole life insurance. Big banks like Bank of America own more whole life than they do all the land and buildings combined. So why would that be? Is it because they're stupid? Or do you think maybe they know something we don't know? Well, you know what they understand? 
they understand one thing, and this is what Rockefellers understood. This is what all the billionaires and the multimillionaires that I meet and talk to understand. They understand a simple principle that Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world. And what is the eighth wonder of the world? It is called uninterrupted, keyword, uninterrupted compound interest. It is the ability for your money to earn compound interest, never be interrupted, but you have to have control of it. So these specially designed whole lives give you the ability to take money, to deposit money with these insurance companies. You earn a guaranteed 4% plus every year they pay you a dividend. But then immediately within the first 30 days, you can go and you can take your money back out and you then can use that money to go buy real estate, use that money to go buy Tesla or different stocks. You can use that money for anything you want. But the beauty is, and this is what they understood, is that money that you took out, you didn't take your own money. Your money's still in your account earning 4% plus the dividends. And the money you took out, that was the insurance company's money. See, insurance companies understand what I said earlier. Money needs to be moving. You don't deposit money in the bank and the bank doesn't take your money and put it in a little box in the back with your name on it. They move your money. They lend it out to your neighbor, to your coworkers, to your friends. They're constantly in the business of moving money. Your deposit then gets moved. How many times can it move? Your money needs to be moved. So you deposit in these mutually owned, specially designed and whole life policies. And just so everybody knows, it's called privatized banking and the street name today is infinite banking. So what I do is I deposit money into these policies. I immediately then take that money out and I use that money to either lend to other investors, real estate investors. I use that money to buy these burrs, these flips. I use that money to do wholesale deals. But my money, every penny of it, is earning uninterrupted compound interest because that's what Albert Einstein said was the most powerful thing in the world. Those who understand it, earn it. That's what I'm doing. Those who don't, pay it. The people I'm lending money to. You see, this is what I learned from Mike. Mike and Greg, those two people, one of the biggest things I learned is this one concept. When they started talking about this, the first thing I said is, no way. No way. It sounds too good to be true. I'm an advisor. Whole life insurance doesn't work that way, guys. I'm in the business. But you know what? That was exactly what most people think. They think they know what they don't know because no one's ever shown you the other side because there's no money in it for anyone to show you. The reason people don't understand this concept is simply because no one's ever shown it to them because they couldn't make money on it. So I know I'm going down a rabbit hole, but that one thing that I just said, the ability for me to deposit money, take that money back out, still earn interest on that money because the insurance company makes a loan to me out of their general account. But then when this is where people get confused too with this concept, they think that loan has to be repaid. But see with these insurance companies, they don't care if you ever pay the loan back because they also made a promise contractually that someday when you graduate, and folks, I don't mean from high school or college, I mean the big graduation day, the day you die, when you graduate, that insurance company has to pay a death benefit to your, your beneficiaries. But when they gave all those loans, every deposit I make, I'm taking it back out in a loan and I'm earning uninterrupted compound interest. Those loans are just advances of my death benefit. So essentially, the insurance company doesn't care if I ever pay it back. They're just going to pay less out the day I graduate. So it gives me the ultimate foundation, if you will, of where my money starts. And all I had to do was learn to change one thing in my life. And that one thing was where my money went first. So it goes over there and then it goes to whatever else I'm doing, real estate, stocks, private lending, anything, paying loans. You see, once you understand this concept, like I do, you will never borrow money from banks the same way you do now. You'll use bank money in mortgages because it's just still going to be a way to leverage, but you're going to use money a completely different way because now you understand how to make your money work for you every day, all day, and never, ever, ever stop earning interest. Why do you think there are so many misconceptions around this idea? Why do you think more people aren't doing it or aren't familiar with it? 
And there's people like the Dave Ramseys, the Susie Ormans out there that, you know, just have brainwashed people to think that whole life is a terrible thing. And because they're, they're talking about regular whole life, life insurance, whole life. They're not peeling the onion two times and understanding how banks are using it, how GE, the company GE uses it, how Apple, Samsung, how all those companies use it, how Walt Disney started Walt Disney World, Ray Kroc launched the advertising campaign for McDonald's, JCPenney, Sears, Pampered Chef. They all started using this system I just told you, but nobody knows about it. Biden, McCain, they both use it. I mean, it's just all over, but you have never been shown this because we get our advice from the sources that we do, from bankers. We get our our advice from advisors like me and advisors are not taught this because if an advisor was taught this, they'd be really excited. I teach advisors this all the time, but then all of a sudden when we get to, okay, well, what does it pay? I tell them how much it pays. They instantly don't want to talk about it anymore because to do the banking system with the whole life, the way I just described means that the advisor has to take a 60 to 90% cut in their pay. Now, all of a sudden what you have is what you've always had is one of the biggest secrets of the wealthy is this privatized banking. It's been around you your whole life. You've heard about it. You've seen it working in banks. That's what vice presidents get when they become a vice president. The bank uses them as a vice president. That's why there's so many VPs. The VP is nothing more than an insurable interest for the bank to go buy another whole life. So they buy a specially designed and engineered whole life. And I want everybody to understand these whole lives are nothing like the whole life that you know. They operate differently. They look different. You put money in and you have the ability to take that money right back out. So it looks nothing like the ones that Susie and Dave are talking about. That's the misconception. The misconception is we just have never been shown how this works because nobody could ever really capitalize and make the money on this. That's what we do. We found a way to do it. We just had to do volume. You mentioned a couple individuals that use it, but mostly companies. Are there any other specific, well-known, ultra-wealthy investors like maybe Bezos, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, you know, that type of person that use these types of strategies? And if so, why isn't that more mainstream? So, you know, that's a great question. And they probably are using it. I would almost guarantee you because I know a bunch of family offices. So wealthy families basically have what's called a family office. And family offices often will use this privatized banking as the foundation for where the money starts because then it never stops earning interest. And then they do other investments outside of that. I can't verify on this show whether or not Bezos uses this. Do I do what I assume he does? Yeah. I mean, every time I see a wealthy individual like a Buffett, a Bezos, or anyone, Steve Jobs, you almost just have to assume that they are using this or their their executive financial team is using this. But they're not calling it, they're not saying, oh yeah, we put Warren Buffett's money in whole life insurance. No, they're calling it privatized banking. You've heard this before. So what do you do? We do privatized banking. And would you ever think to ask one additional question? Well, what is privatized banking? No, you're just like, oh, wow, privatized banking. Hmm, I probably don't have enough money to do that. That's what most people think. They don't want to take that extra step. You see, I've always been really bold being an ex-pro snowboard. I just say it. So when I meet people like people on my podcast, I just say, hey, what do you do with money? Where does your money go? And you would never, ever believe me if I told you how many of these incredibly successful, wealthy individuals, you know what they say? I, I say, hey, are you using privatized banking? You know, you putting money into specially designed whole lives? Oh, of course we are. That's always what they say. It's not even like, well, no, but tell me about it. No, it's always, oh, of course we are. And it's just, why don't we know about it? Well, they're not going around talking about it. What's in it for them to tell you about this? Nothing. What's in it for your financial advisor to tell you about this great strategy? You know, all these unbelievable people from Walt Disney to Ray Kroc to, uh, I hate to get political, but Biden and and McCain, just because they publicly have said it. That's why I'm using them. I I hate politics. But all these people use it. They just don't talk about it because they have nothing to gain. You see, we live in a self-serving world, like where if if somebody's got something, they're not going to tell you about it if they can't gain from it. But there are some people, 
some people that I've met that love telling people because it's all about giving. And Zig Ziglar said, if you help enough people get what they want, you get what you want. And that's what I, I base my entire business, my life around that statement. I think it really all boils down to incentives, right? I mean, I think incentives lead almost everything in this world. And it sounds like there's no incentive for really anybody to teach this because you're not just going to make any money. And that's a lot of times the incentive that people are looking for, unless there's the occasional individual such as yourself who's looking for incentives in a different way. You know, just helping people is, is that incentive. So, well, your audience would hear that and be like, oh, he's not doing that just to help people. And, and you're absolutely correct, folks. I'm not doing that. You know, I do help people. And that's the sole thing. But what we figured out, We have to help so many people in order to make a good living doing this privatized banking, infinite banking concept. That's what we figured out. We said, okay, well, how do we help more and more people? Well, what we did is we basically designed a system to make a lot less, but we help a lot more people. And we help over 3,000 people doing this banking concept. But see, it's not a lot of people where they stop is they think it's about the whole life. The whole life is nothing more than the dumb machine that we use to move your money. And if I could find a better machine than this specially designed whole life to use, by all means, I'd be using it tomorrow. But there hasn't been for hundreds of years. It's been the most efficient vehicle to do what we needed to do for banking. Our company focuses on the banking. We focus on what do you do with the money after you put it there? Because you don't want to just put it there and leave it. Then your money's sitting in that stagnant pond that I talk about. We want our money in that river. We want our money flowing and we want it flowing fast. So what we focused our business around is that part of it. How do you move your money? How do you make money the second time? If you're already making money over there, how do we make money a second time? How do we make money in stocks, in real estate, in banking, in private lending? How do we make money through our own debts and expenses that we already have? Imagine this, folks. Imagine if you could just build wealth by just doing one thing. And that one thing is just taking back the money that you're giving away to everybody else. Wouldn't that be a grand idea? Imagine that. Think of all the money you write checks to, all the people you write checks to, all the companies you write checks to every month, Visa, Amex, Discover, Home Depot, Lowe's. Add all that up. How much are you giving away every month and how much interest are they charging you? Is it 5, 10, 15, 29%? What if we had a method where we could just take back the money that we're giving away to everybody else? You'd build tremendous amounts of wealth. And then I could then show people how to get all the money back for every single car they will ever buy, drive, and own. I don't care if it's a Ford Focus or a Ferrari. We just add a zero. See, once you understand how to move money and take back the money that you're giving away, you absolutely, and I can show someone in five minutes, how to get all the money back for every single car they will ever buy, drive, and own. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's, it's guaranteed to work. You just got to change one thing in what you're doing now. But most people, they always say, oh, that sounds too good to be true. Well, you know what? Will Rogers said something profound too. He said, the biggest problem in America is not what people don't know. He said, the problem in America is what people think they know that just ain't so. Why is it that we take advice from people that don't live the day we want to live, that don't live the perfect life we want to live. You know, I find that hilarious. And a mentor of mine said to me, he says, what are you working for? And I rambled off a bunch of things. And he said, nonsense. What are you working for? And he kept asking this. I kept telling him, he kept saying, that's not what you're working for. That's a lie. That's not it. And then he finally said, aren't you working for the perfect day? Don't you want to live your perfect day every single day? And then that changed everything. Because then I realized I had to understand what does my perfect day look like? And how do I make that perfect day happen every day? And once I figured that out, I just had to figure out how do I make it happen? Well, you're never going to have my perfect day if I'm always trapped and out of control of my money and giving all my money to everybody else. So now I'm the bank. When I buy a car, I just bought my wife a Porsche. That Porsche, we used our banking policy to pay for it. And then what we do is we still make a monthly payment, but we make that payment back ourselves. You do this for everything in your life. You could get all the money back for all the taxes you're going to pay. You could get all the money back for the real estate deals you do. You can get all the money back for the boats and 
anything. It works for everything. And I don't mean to go down a tangent with this, but it is that powerful that the people that understand it will change their lives. It does sound too good to be true. And I've actually had this conversation with someone before. We never talked about it here on the show. It wasn't a guest. It was someone that I know in my personal life that I had this conversation with. And I remember I felt the same way was that when I was talking to them, I was like, there's no way this is true. Because I, I was in a similar position to you as I thought I knew you know, a thing or two about money and personal finance and investing. And then he was explaining it to me. And I, my first thought was that it's too good to be true. I haven't done anything with it yet. I have a couple of books on my shelf that I want to read that are about this concept, but I haven't dove into it yet. And maybe this conversation that we're having will be catalyst that I need to really start studying it more. But a lot of people in the audience are really big readers and just like myself. And so I want to get some book recommendations from you, not only about this infinite banking or privatized banking concept, but just personal finance in general. What are some of the best books that people should read that can cover these types of topics? Well, can we do one thing a little different too? Can I give your entire audience a free book? So this book, Mapping Out the Millionaire Mystery, this is my newest book. It's all about that concept that sounds too good to be true. I mean, I'll give this book away for free to everybody if they want it. I mean, they can get the ebook or they can have the hardcover if they just do the shipping. And I got this one, The Private Money Guide, Solutions to Finding Money, Where to Go, How to Ask. I don't mean to be self-serving and say that these are the only books because they're certainly not. But outside of those books, some very important books you should all read is number one, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. That book, bar none, is the first read. If you haven't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that's the next one. Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, is phenomenal. And then there's another book that I absolutely love. And it's, it's perfect for money because it doesn't just cover one aspect of money, but it's called the 501k. The 501k was written by the grandfather. Yeah, the grandfather, I think is what he calls himself, of the 401k, the guy that invented and came up with the 401k. He basically does an entire book talking about all the different financial vehicles that he's learned about in his entire professional career. This banking system I talk about are none. He says that it is the Swiss army knife of the financial world, the biggest secret in the financial world. And you can't understand why more people don't know about it, just like you did. Because too many people think it sounds too good to be true and they stop right there when the secret lies one step further. So those are some great books. And I highly recommend reading them all, but absolutely start with Think and Grow Rich from Napoleon Hill. That is a must read. As always, for everyone listening to the show, I'll be sure to put links to all those different books in the show notes. So if you're interested in reading them, feel free to click the link below in your favorite podcast player to go pick those up. And Chris, that's very generous of you to give the book to the audience. Where can everybody listening today go or connect with you to get the book and then just learn more about everything else that you have going on? It's very simple. If they just go to my website, chrisnaugle.com and then slash resources, all the videos, training and teaching you how to do all these things that I talked about today are there. Everything's free. The book links, if you just go in there, all the book links to get the free books, whether you want the ebook, the audiobook, or the hardcover, the hardcover, you just got to pay shipping. They're all on there. So chrisnoggle.com, everything's on that one place. There will be a link to that in the show notes as well so that you guys can go check that out. Chris, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I really enjoyed it. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.